Amen. Praise the Lord, everybody. Why don't you give the Lord one more hand clap of praise? How many is glad to be in the house of the Lord? How many is glad to be in the presence of the Lord? In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Anybody need some joy in the house? In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And then the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So I get the strength from the joy that I found by being in his presence. Because time after time, God reminds us, whatever you need, you can find it when you get in my presence. And I believe we're in his presence today. And I don't want to leave his presence the same way. Amen. It's an honor to be back with you this morning. I have been looking forward to these services for quite some time. In fact, ever since we booked it last year, I've been looking forward to being back. And uh, I give your pastor honor today and also your pastor's wife and their family. How many know that you're blessed with great leadership here? Amen. And I give them honor today and all the ministry, all the ministry that makes up this great church and all the saints that are here, uh, any visitors that may be here. Uh, thank you for being in the house of the Lord today. Now, it's five to one, and I don't know if that matters to you or not. Um, uh, I know a lot of you have probably been here since 1030. I think that's when Sunday school started. And um, but don't check out on me just yet. Um, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I'll just tell you that. Uh, the good news is I've only got about a five-minute sermon. Now, if they didn't shout over that, I'm in trouble. You're waiting on the bad news, aren't you? The bad news is it's going to take me a little bit to get to it. I don't think they, they, I don't think they brought me up here just to hear five minutes, but um, I do feel like the Lord's going to talk to us today. And uh, if you're in the house today and you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, I couldn't think of a better thing that you could do today than be baptized in Jesus' name. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Amen. That's how they were baptized in the early church. And if you're here and you don't have the Holy Ghost, it's a good day to receive the Holy Ghost. If you're here and you need something from the Lord, it's a good day to get whatever you need. So um, I'm just going to omit the usual Bible reading, if that's all right. And uh, I'm going to get right into this. Uh, but I want to talk to you this, this afternoon about the progression of the Lamb. The progression of the Lamb. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. John's gospel opens by introducing to us a man by the name of John the Baptist. And this eccentric man whom, according to the Bible, wore camel's hair and ate wild locusts, was sent to be a witness of the light who would later come. Even centuries before John's birth, prophets of the Old Testament gave insight of him being a forerunner of Christ and the role that he would play when those prophets said that God 
would send his messenger before his face, which would prepare the way. He would be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that it was this man, John the Baptist, who now stands waist deep in the Jordan River. And the question is asked, why baptizest thou then if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither the prophet? And John, understanding that he is setting the stage for the Messiah's arrival, answers their question by saying that I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. Then as the next day begins to unfold and John continues to baptize, Jesus, that Messiah, tops the hill. And when John locks his eyes with Jesus, John prophetically proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Ladies and gentlemen, look at it very closely with me this morning. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. It is a powerful thing to read, and it's a powerful thing to understand. And while I love what John does call Jesus, I submit to this great congregation that I am persuaded that what John does not call Jesus is equally as powerful as what he does call Jesus. Because when Jesus topped that hill, John did not say, Behold my cousin. He did not say, behold, a capable carpenter, a great miracle worker, or a great teacher. But when John saw Jesus, he knew that Jesus was those things. Yes, he's my family. And yes, he is skilled with his hands. And yes, he's used in the supernatural. But John understands that beyond all of those things, this man is the Lamb of God. And to fully know the significance of that statement, you must understand understand this morning that the sacrifice of lambs played a very important role in the Jewish religious life and their sacrificial system. So when John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, I'm sure that there were Jews who were present during that service and immediately begin to think of the several important sacrifices that were carried out because in biblical times, lambs were always required for a sacrifice. The Jews who were present during John's baptismal services and even those Jews who were within ears distance that moment would have been very familiar with those Old Testament prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah men who prophesied of the coming Messiah when they said that the coming one would be brought forth like a lamb led to the slaughter and so understand that it was not an accident nor was it a coincidence that John calls Jesus the lamb you gotta understand that John John is not using some cool catchphrase uh, to describe this man Jesus uh, because the fact is ladies and gentlemen uh, God's answer for humanity uh, has always been a dead lamb uh, and a puddle of blood uh, God's remedy and God's plan from the very beginning uh, always involved a bloody lamb uh, and through the pages of the Old Testament uh, we see this very thing play out with God's people the nation of Israel uh, in fact brother Biddle I believe the entire Old Testament. All 39 books could be summed up with one question and that would be where is the lamb? Because time after time Israel perpetually
naturally found themselves in need of a lamb. They found themselves in need of a sacrifice because a lamb was absolutely needed and absolutely necessary within the framework of God's mind. And so with that understanding in mind, I've come to look at the lamb of God in your Bible because when you study that lamb, you are able to realize that this lamb is progressive. It starts at the first point and through the process of time moves to the next point until we get to the complete unfolding of that revelation. And so I've come to spend a few moments to tell you this morning that the Lamb of God in your Bible is progressive. It first appears... In Genesis chapter number 22, the chapter opens by God speaking to a man by the name of Abraham. And God tells Abraham that I want you to take your only son, take that promised boy Isaac, go up to the mountain of Moriah, and when you get to the top of that mountain, I want you to build an altar and sacrifice your son on that altar. And so it tells us that Abraham obeys God. He takes the wood for that altar, places it on the shoulder of Isaac and Abraham has the knife and the fire in his hand and as they begin to climb up that mountain the Bible says Isaac begins to look around and Isaac realizes something is missing. Isaac understands that if you're really going to sacrifice you've got to have a lamb and so Isaac looks at his father Abraham and asks the question where is the lamb and watch this Abraham knowing what God told him knowing that God said sacrifice your son looks back at his boy and said God will provide himself a lamb and when they arrive to the top of that mountain the altar's built Abraham binds his son, lays him on that altar. But we know the story before the knife can plunge into the back of that boy. The angel of the Lord appears and stops Abraham. And the Bible says Abraham sees a ram caught in the thicket. Now it's not a contradiction. God tells Abraham or Abraham tells Isaac, God's going to send a lamb, but there's a ram in the thicket. It's not a contradiction in your Bible because in those days a ram was a fully grown male lamb and ladies and gentlemen it was on this day at the top of Mount Moriah when the progression was initiated because at this moment in human history God's plan began to unfold it was at that moment that God sent a lamb and it saved that boy Isaac can I tell this congregation from that moment until Isaac died there was an appreciation for the lamb because Isaac understood I would not be alive today if the lamb had not come and taken my place. In Genesis 22, ladies and gentlemen, the lamb is sent to save one boy. But the progression continues because we now find ourselves in Exodus chapter 12. And this chapter opens and we find the nation of Israel still living in Egypt, dealing with the slavery of Pharaoh. Nine plagues have been sent, but Pharaoh still refuses to release Israel. And so we find God speaking to Moses and Aaron. And God says, I want you to speak to the congregation of Israel and tell them to take every man a lamb according to the house of their father. 
brothers, a lamb for a house. And so the Bible says they are to take this lamb. They would bring the lamb in their house. They would cook that lamb. They ate of that lamb. And then they took the blood of that lamb and put it over the doorpost of their house. You may be wondering, why did God require this? It's because that night, the death angel was going to be released throughout the land. And if the lamb had not been brought in the house, and if the blood had not been applied to that house, the death angel had access into that house. But ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, it is here where the progression continues. In the beginning, it was sent to save one boy. But now God says, I'm about to send my lamb again. But this time, it's about to save the family. And when the next day began to unfold, there was a cry throughout the land of Egypt because the destroyer had entered into their house. But while there was weeping in Egypt, there was rejoicing in the nation of Israel because the lamb had come and the lamb had saved the family. And from that moment going forward, the nation of Israel lived. Every family lived with an appreciation for the lamb. All but the progression continues, ladies and gentlemen, because we now find ourselves in Leviticus chapter 16. And again, we find ourselves reading about the nation of Israel. But this time, the nation of Israel has come out of Egypt, and they are preparing to observe one of the holiest days in their history. In fact, it is something they continue to observe today. It was the Day of Atonement. you got to understand the Day of Atonement was important because all the sin of Israel, had come up before the Lord and if sin is not dealt with death will be imminent but God speaks to Moses and says I want you to tell my high priest Aaron I've got a remedy for your sin he said you tell my high priest bathe himself put on special garments and I want you to tell him to enter into the holy of holies and when my priest gets in that holy place I want you to take an animal symbolic of the lamb and I want you to cut the throat of that animal I want you to tell my priest, sprinkle the blood all over the holy place. Sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. You may be asking, why did God require this? Sin has come up before the Lord. And if sin is not dealt with, death is going to be imminent. Can I tell this congregation, the entire nation of Israel stood on brink of extermination. But God said, I'm about to send my lamb again. But this time, it's not going to save a boy. And this time, it's not going to save a family, but I'm about to progress my lamb, and the lamb is going to save the nation. When the lamb first comes, it saves one boy, Isaac. His next appearance, he saves the family of Israel. His third appearance in the Old Testament, he saves the entire nation. But we jump out of the Old Testament uh, and we land back in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, we land back in John chapter 1 uh, because when you begin to look at that lamb uh, and the progression the lamb makes, uh, there is an obvious progression, ladies and gentlemen, uh, with the lamb serving as a representative uh, of larger and larger groups of people. Uh, and so finally the day comes uh, when John the Baptist is baptizing in Jordan uh, and he sees Jesus approaching. Uh, and it's in John chapter 1 and verse 
verse 29, when John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. In fact, seven short verses later, John declares again, Behold, the Lamb of God. Can I tell this congregation this afternoon, I believe when John used that word behold, in essence he was telling those Jews that day to get your eyes off of me, stop focusing on me, and get your eyes on that man because he's more than a carpenter, he's more than a teacher, he's more than a miracle worker, but this is the Lamb of God. Every Old Testament Lamb had led up until this moment. And it's in John chapter 1 where you and I see the culmination of the progression. It is in John chapter 1 where you and I see the grand finale because God was planning this from the very beginning. From the very moment time began to tick away, it was in the mind of God. I'm going to save a lamb for the entire world. At first, it saved Isaac. Then it saved the family. And then it saved the nation. But there was a day, ladies and gentlemen, when the lamb of God wasn't just satisfied with one group of people. Aren't you thankful God loved us enough? Aren't you thankful? God looked at some Gentiles and said, I love you enough. I'm going to send my lamb to save everybody. Oh, can I tell this congregation that if the Lamb of God had not come, if Jesus Christ had not been born, we wouldn't be where we are this morning. We wouldn't feel what we feel this morning. We wouldn't have the salvation we have today. But thank God the Lamb progressed. Thank God the Lamb came. Thank God for the Lamb. The words of Abraham to his son Isaac at the very beginning of the inception of the progression were fulfilled. God will provide himself a lamb. See, the whole sacrificial system established by God in the Old Testament was just setting the stage for the coming and the birth of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I say this often, but you cannot understand the New Testament if you don't have the foundation of the Old Testament. You will get confused and you will get mixed up in theology of the New Testament if you don't know what was already established in the Old Testament. Why would God or why would John call Jesus the Lamb? It's because John knows his place. John said, I'm not that light. I'm just preparing the way for that light to come. And so John understands his role. John knows who Jesus is. He understands every Old Testament lamb was leading up to this moment, the man Jesus Christ. But in order to really understand why John could call Jesus the lamb, I've got to take you to Luke chapter 2 where we see the birth of that lamb. Now, let me preface by saying this. Luke chapter 2 is usually verses in the Bible we only read during Christmas time. We read them during service, read them to our family, and there's, we, we do the same thing. But a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can just relegate certain verses to certain times of the year and never visit them throughout the other time of the year. So don't check out on me just yet. Watch this. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. 
We could probably all quote it, but I want you to watch this. The Bible says, and there were in that same country, which is Bethlehem, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord came upon them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. What is the good tidings of great joy? The angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David which is Bethlehem a savior which is Christ the Lord and this is going to be the sign that you found him you're going to find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger now I've read that all my life I've heard it preached all my life until some time ago a question popped into my mind and that question was why did the angels appear to shepherds I mean, if God has robed himself in flesh and been born of a woman, if God has put on humanity, why not tell the highest authorities in that region? Why didn't they tell Caesar Augustus? Why didn't they tell King Herod? But for some reason, the Bible says the angels told shepherds. Now, I ask that question because if you know your Bible, shepherds were the dirty people of civilization. The occupation of being a shepherd was the lowest rung on the ladder. Kids did not go to career day at school and say, I want to be a shepherd when I grow up. Because they were looked down on. So knowing that, why did angels make the announcement that God has robed himself in flesh to shepherds of all people? Alfred Edersheim, who was Jewish by birth and training, and later became a follower of Jesus, offers insight to this very scenario. When Alfred Edersheim tells us that people in those days, people in the days of Luke 2 when Jesus was born, shepherds were forbidden to keep their flocks in the land of Israel. And he said if there were flocks in the land of Israel, they were not ordinary flocks, but they were flocks being kept and groomed to be used in temple sacrifices. And according to this Jewish man's writing, he says that the angels appeared to shepherds but these were not ordinary shepherds he said the shepherds that these angels appeared to were Levitical shepherds who were watching over lambs that would later be used in temple sacrifices to take it a step further Many theologians believe that the very fields these shepherds were in were the same fields that Ruth and Boaz fell in love in in the Old Testament they believed that these were the same fields that David, a shepherd, watched his father's sheep in because they're in the city of David. They are in Bethlehem. And so these angels appear to Levitical shepherds, and these Levitical shepherds are watching over lambs that will be used in the temple sacrifice. So understand, ladies and gentlemen, these are not ordinary shepherds, and these are not ordinary lambs, and they're in very prophetic fields. When you begin to study those fields, you would find that there is a military-like structure in those fields that was called the Magdal Eater. It literally meant the tower of the flock. 
It was there at the Tower of the Flock where a lamb which had met the requirements for Passover would be taken. In order to meet the requirements, we understand the lamb had to be perfect. There had to be no blemish. There had to be no imperfections. And so once it passed the requirements, the shepherd would take that lamb to this Tower of the Flock. And watch this. Without fail, they would always wrap that lamb in swaddling clothes. And they would lay that lamb in a feeding trough or a manger on the floor. Now you may say, well, you're reaching, preacher. The prophet Micah prophesies this very thing, ladies and gentlemen. Because it is in Micah chapter 4 and verse number 8. The Spirit of the Lord begins to move on the prophet. And the prophet points his finger at the Magdal leader. He points his finger at the tower of the flock. And the prophet Micah says, And you, O tower of the flock, to you it shall come. Now what is the it the prophet speaks of? He's speaking about the Messiah. He's speaking about the Lamb of God. The Holy Ghost moves on the prophet. And he says, I don't know when and I don't know how, but there's a day coming when it is going to make its arrival. And so the shepherds are out in the field and the angel tells them the Messiah has been born. Now surely I'm not the only one who's read those verses and thought. Man, the angels really didn't give good instructions. Because all the angels told them was in the city of David, Bethlehem, he's come. He didn't tell them a street to turn down. He didn't tell them the house number. He's very vague in his directions. He just says it's in the city of Bethlehem. Now, if I told you what you're looking for is in Whiteland or Indianapolis, you'd be like, all right, what street do I turn down? What house number am I looking for? I need to know if I go past the railroad tracks, I've gone too far. They give nothing like that. They just say he's come to the city of David. But because these are Levitical shepherds and because they understand Old Testament prophecies like Micah, when they hear that the Messiah's been born, the shepherds come to the conclusion that there's only one place the Messiah is going to be at because the prophet said to you, Tower, it's going to come. And so the shepherds know there's only one place the Messiah can be. And they go to the tower of the flock and the angels tell them, this is going to be the sign you find him. You're going to find that baby just like those other lambs. He's going to be wrapped in a cloth laying in a manger or a feeding trough. And when these shepherds walked in and they saw that Jewish baby in that place, those shepherds understood. This is more than just some Jewish baby who had no place in a hotel. Those shepherds understood. We are standing in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Those lambs had to be wrapped. Jesus was wrapped. Those lambs were placed in a feeding trough. Jesus was placed in a manger. We've got it all messed up. The customs has got it all messed up. He wasn't in a manger off the floor. He was laying in a feeding trough in the ground because it protected those lambs. It shielded those lambs. And when they walked in and saw that baby, they understood. The Lamb of God has been born. That's why John could look at him and say, I know who you are. You were born as the lamb. But can I tell this congregation that not only was Jesus born as the lamb, but there was another reason why John could call him the lamb of God.
God. Because you see, year after year in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites would take part in a Paschal lamb. They would take a lamb that would serve as a remembrance of Jesus or God bringing them out of Egypt. Uh, and this Paschal lamb served as a reminder uh, that we, we were once slaves in Israel, Egypt. Uh, we once had a Pharaoh whipping our back. Uh, but every year, uh, a lamb was chosen to serve as a reminder uh, that we were once slaves, but now we're free. A lamb was chosen. Ladies and gentlemen, not only, not any lamb could be chosen, but a lamb would be searched carefully for four days before that lamb was qualified to be a paschal lamb. For four days, ladies and gentlemen, those priests would look over that lamb. For 96 strenuous hours, they would look for one imperfection. They would look for one flaw. They would look for a cleft palate. They would look for a bent hoof. They were looking for anything that would disqualify that lamb. And if they found one imperfection, they had to start the process over again. I say all of that, ladies and gentlemen, because the day comes when Jesus stands on trial before Pilate. And the Romans have no idea why the Jews want to kill this man. Pilate is so worried about the situation that your Bible says he washes his hands and said his blood will not be on my hands. But we understand the crowd begins to scream crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus stands on trial and Pilate has overlooked him. Pilate has observed him. He's tried to find one reason why he's guilty of death. And when Pilate makes that statement, I don't know if he understood what he said when he said it. But when Jesus stands before him and after Pilate has observed him, Pilate makes the statement, I find no fault in him. You want to know why there was no fault in him, ladies and gentlemen? It was because the Lamb of God was standing in his presence. That's why there was no failure. That's why there was no sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus became the perfect replacement for my sin and for your sin. That's why John could call him the lamb because he wasn't just born as the lamb. He lived as the lamb. Oh, but there was a third and final reason why John could call him the lamb. You see, there was another sacrifice that Israel took part of. It was the sacrifice known as the timid or the perpetual or continual sacrifice. And according to the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, once again, an unblemished perfect lamb would be sacrificed. They called it the perpetual sacrifice simply because it happened twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And according to Josephus, a Jewish prolific writer, he tells us that the first sacrifice began at 9 a.m. The final sacrifice ended at 3 p.m. Now that's interesting because go to Mark's gospel when you have time. And for some reason when they begin to crucify Jesus, Mark feels compelled to let us know the moment the crucifixion starts and the moment the crucifixion ends. Because in Mark chapter 15 verse 25, the Bible says that it was the third hour, 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And then in verses 34 through 37 of that same chapter, he then says, and at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus gives up the ghost. Can I tell this congregation that it was not an accident? 
nor was it a coincidence that the crucifixion of Jesus began when the perpetual sacrifice began and his crucifixion ended when the perpetual sacrifice ended because even while he was dying on a cross with nails in his hands and feet he was one more time telling those people that day and he's telling us today that I wasn't just born as the lamb and I didn't just live as the lamb but I'm dying as the lamb by Jesus going to the cross he became that timid he became that perpetual sacrifice and because Jesus is the perpetual sacrifice people are still having their sin washed away because Jesus is the perpetual sacrifice people are still receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost because he is in that perpetual place and that's why I can go to every service and that's why I can stand by in every pulpit and make the declaration that if you've never been baptized in Jesus name, blood is still being shed. If you've never received the gift of the Holy Ghost, the spirit is still being poured out. It's because Jesus became the perpetual sacrifice. John calls him the lamb, ladies and gentlemen. He was simply making the announcement. This is what all those other lambs have been leading to. This is the lamb that we've been waiting on. What the blood of bullocks and goats could not do, the blood of Jesus did do. See, God's plan for redemption, ladies and gentlemen, has always been a lamb in blood. His plan is shown to us, hidden, within the first few chapters of your Bible. Adam and Eve is created and placed in the garden. God gives them one rule. Don't touch the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But just like humanity, they cannot follow one rule. God says, you've got all these trees, just don't touch the one. And the one they couldn't take their eyes off of was the one that they could not have. But the Bible says when they eat of that fruit... Their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked and became afraid. And when God appears in the garden, Adam and Eve hide themselves. Now that's amazing because when they eat of the fruit and their eyes are opened, they know they're naked. They become ashamed. So your Bible says they take fig leaves and sew those fig leaves together and make a girdle. But even though they've covered themselves to the best of their ability, when God shows up, they still hide themselves. Because apparently man's attempt to cover himself is not God's idea to cover himself. Boy, I go a lot of different ways right now. See, God's idea of modesty is not man's idea. They took fig leaves and covered themselves. We always talk about two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But apparently there's a third tree that we never talk about. Apparently there's a fig tree somewhere not too far away because the Bible said they took fig leaves and covered themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you the tree of life represents God's spirit. The tree of knowledge of good and evil represents Humanity sin. The tree of figs represents man's attempt to cover himself. 
Isn't it amazing that they use fig leaves? See, this, this, is, this is Sanford theology. Take it or leave it. That's why I believe the fruit they ate of was a fig. Because there's a fig tree not far away. And they begin to cover themselves with that same tree of the, those same leaves. But watch this. This is why Jesus is going to the cross. But before he goes, he stops. And he looks at a fig tree. And for some reason, he curses that fig tree. Because I believe what Jesus was doing was his mind went all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve failed and they took figs of that tree and they attempted to cover themselves. And I believe what Jesus was saying was that what you could not do by yourself, I'm about to do at the fourth tree called Calvary. And it all begins to come together and make sense because they cover themselves with fig leaves. But God appears and the Bible says God covers them with skins of an animal. And without fail, every theologian I've read believed that the animal that God killed and covered them with was a lamb. Because man attempted to cover himself, but he could not. So Jesus said, I'm going to curse the very thing that tried, you tried to cover yourself with. But I'm going to become the lamb that dies at that place called Calvary. Can I tell this congregation that the first Adam was covered by a lamb. But the second Adam, which was Christ, became the lamb. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you, before it all began, there was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before all of this ever began to start, it didn't catch God off guard. The plan of God was in his mind I'm going to send a lamb I'm going to come myself and what humanity cannot do for themselves I'm going to do for them ladies and gentlemen you are not some afterthought in the mind of God the plan of God was not just something that God came up with sporadically. Can I tell this congregation that it was there from the very beginning? The plan of God was there. You got time for this? I want to show you just how much God cared for us and God loves us. The word Lord in the Old Testament, many times when God speaks, he says, I am the Lord. And any time the word Lord appears, and it's in all caps, it's the Old Testament name of God. That's why Malachi 3 and 16 says, Then they that feared the Lord, all caps, spake one to another, and the Lord, all caps, hearkened and heard them. The Bible says he writ, they wrote their names in a book of remembrance. Uh, them that feared the Lord, all caps, and thought upon his name. Anytime, this will help you when you study, anytime in the Old Testament you see the word Lord in all caps, it's the name Jehovah. It's the Old Testament name of God. No other name or place in your Bible is used more than the word Lord because it appears 6,882 times. It's the Tetragrammaton or it's God's ancient name. It's translated Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H. And because Hebrew has no vowels, we have to add the vowels, and that's where we get Yahweh or Jehovah. You see, in order to understand what I'm about to say, 
you've got to know that Hebrew language is the oldest and most unique language in the known world. We in the English language have 26 letters. Hebrew language has 22 pictographs. And each pictograph has a number attached to it. And it is also a spoken language. So Hebrew language is literally three languages in one. And how we read English is left to right. They read Hebrew right to left. So I can tell this congregation, every time you see the word Lord or Jehovah in the Old Testament, hidden within that name is God's plan for redemption. Take the word Lord and break it down. Jehovah or Yahweh. The first letter Y is Yod. The pictograph that is applied to that is a picture of a hand. The second letter H or Hey literally means to reveal or to behold. W or Vav is a picture of a nail. Again, the word letter H is Hey, which means to reveal or to behold. And when you read that word, Lord, in Hebrew, in our language from left to right, you know what you get? It literally means behold the nail, behold the hand. And every time God's Old Testament name appears in the Old Testament, Every time you come across that word Lord in all caps uh, and you see that it's Jehovah talking uh, hidden within the most complex language known to man, Hebrew, uh, is the plan of God for redemption. Uh, Behold the nail uh, and behold the hand. Uh, Can I tell this congregation uh, that the cross is not some afterthought? Uh, God sending a lamb is not something uh, he just came up with, uh, but it's there hidden all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God telling us, uh, I'm going to come and I'm going to become that lamb it's there ladies and gentlemen and I've got to hurry the number 10 is a fascinating number when you look at it from the Hebrew language because again remember every pictograph has a number attached to it and it has its own spoken language the number 10 in Hebrew literally means a completed cycle Or something that was started has now become finished. So if the number 10 means a divine order, I began to think of that some time ago. And I began to wonder if the number 10 means something that has started has now become finished. I began to look at the first 10 men's names in the Bible. Every name in your Bible means something of spiritual significance. Every place has spiritual significance in its name. So we understand that Adam, watch this, was the first man created. Adam's name literally means man. Cain kills Abel, they're eliminated. So God sends Adam, Seth, as a replacement. Seth means appointed. Seth gives birth to a boy named Enos, which means mortal or frail. Enos gives birth to Canaan, which means sorrow. Canaan gives birth to Mahalalel, which means the blessed God. He gives birth to Jared, which means shall come down. Jared gives birth to Enoch, which means teaching. Enoch gives birth to Methuselah, which means his death shall bring. Methuselah gives birth to Lamech 
Lamech, which means the despairing. Lamech gives birth to Noah, which means to bring relief. And can I tell this congregation, when you put the first ten generations of your Bible together, this is what you get. Man is appointed to mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Can I tell this congregation, God didn't send somebody else to do the dirty work. God said, I'm sending myself. I'm going to come in flesh. I'm going to come as a man, but I'm not just a man. I'm God manifest in the flesh. Oh, you ought to lift your hands right now and thank him because God loved us enough. God loved you enough to come himself. It's not love, ladies and gentlemen, if I send somebody else to die for you. If I love somebody so much, I'm not going to send Brother Biddle to do the dirty work. I'm going to do it myself. Ladies and gentlemen, it's there, hidden all throughout the Old Testament. A lamb in blood. And I see the runway, just hang on to me. That's why Leviticus 17, Pastor, tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, the blood, upon you to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for your soul. Now I've gotten to my five-minute sermon. I was reading an article some time ago. And you may have saw this article yourself. When I read this article, my mind started spinning. And this is how God began to birth this into my spirit. I came across an article that told me that lambs in Australia had been being taken in by scientists. And to these scientists' amazement, the blood of lambs could be used as snake venom antidote. In the article, it said that they would take in up to 2,000 lambs at a time, inject the venom of a rattlesnake into that lamb, and to their amazement, antibodies were produced that could be used later to treat snake bite victims. When the venom of that snake met the blood of that lamb, When the venom of the snake met the blood of the lamb, antibodies blew up in that lamb. And I would not have believed this unless I read it, but in that article it said the only animal on this planet whose blood does that is the blood of a lamb. Can I tell this congregation that when the snake appeared in the garden, it bit Adam and Eve. And from that moment for years, venom coursed through the bloodline of man and woman. Your Bible said by one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. And can I tell you, from that moment until the day Jesus was born, humanity was cursed. We were cursed to live under sin. We were cursed to live under bondage. We were cursed to live under depression. We were cursed to live under the oppression of the enemy. Oh, but ladies and gentlemen, when the day came, when Jesus went to that cross, and the first drop of blood came out of his body and hit that ground, it sent a shockwave throughout heaven. 
hell because hell had thought they had won. But little did they know is the plan was about to backfire. And when the blood of that lamb met the venom of that snake... Can I tell somebody in this house, that's why you can overcome. That's why you can make it. That's why you can be victorious. Because the blood of the Lamb is able to destroy the venom. And I'm preaching to people as we stand. I'm preaching to people in this room right now. You may have come to church on this Sunday morning. And you may feel like the Apostle Paul. You may have a snake hanging from your wrist. But I'm telling people in this house, it doesn't matter what hell's tried to do. It doesn't matter what hell's even doing. If you've got the lamb, if you've got the blood, you've got the antidote. I've come to encourage everybody in this house today and tell you when you were baptized in Jesus' name, the Lamb covered you. The blood was applied to you. And can I tell you, when you were baptized, more happened than you just getting wet. But you entered into a covenant relationship with God. You entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And because the Lamb is over you, and because the blood is in you, it doesn't matter what hell throws against us. And if you're in this house today and you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, that's how you get the lamb on your side. That's how the blood gets on your side. I'm telling people in this room today, whatever hell is thrown against you, whatever the devil may be throwing against you right now, you can be like Paul and just shake it off. Because the blood of the Lamb is able to meet and destroy everything the lion or the snake throws against us. You have in you today a built-in defense mechanism that the moment the snake attacks or even bites, the very thing that you need is already there. The lamb covered Adam and Eve in the garden. And the lamb progresses through the Old Testament and the New. And so it's not amazing to me to read in the book of Revelation, the last chapter, that John says that they're going to overcome him by the blood of the lamb. And there is an overcoming power in this room today. Well, I know we've been here for a while, but why don't we just lift our hands one more time. I'm telling people in this room today, hell is no match for the God that's covered you. The enemy is no match to the blood that flows within you. Before we transition right now and they begin to lead us into praise and worship, we've already had some begin to step out. But if you need something from the Lord today, I wonder if one more time we could just kind of gather in the best we can. I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost is about to meet with us again in this house. We're not going to belabor the point. We're not going to stretch this out. I know we got things to do. But I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost wants somebody to be reminded that if God is on your side, it doesn't matter what hell throws against you. Come on, why don't we all just kind of gather in as much as we can today.